scripture reading tonight is coming out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11 through 17. For the moment, all, dis- all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Lord God, you are holy. You are completely and utterly set apart. You are everything that we are not. And Lord, you, in your holiness, demand holiness. Lord, you cannot participate in sin because you hate sin. And yet here we are, a room full of sinners people who have rebelled against you, who are practitioners of lawlessness. And Lord God, we need you. We desire a relationship with you. And Lord God, we, I pray, desire to walk in holiness that we might see you for who you are. God, we are far too easily pleased. We have given our thing, ourselves over to things that are unworthy of our time and attention. Like Esau, Lord, we sell our birthright for a mere uh, bowl of soup. God, would you change the desires of our heart to be away from the things of this world and towards things of you, things of substance. Lord, your holiness, that you would make us set apart and use us, utilize us as people who can live in a manner worthy of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. God, would you speak to us tonight in grace and truth. Help us to aspire to the holiness that you have for us to walk in, that we would just walk in it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we all stand as we worship together? I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. 
Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. And I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. And there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. Lord, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. You turn morning to day. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. Oh, you turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. Oh, there's no.
you turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. You're the only one who can. You're the only one who can. Amen. We know from Scripture, from in James, James 4, verse 8, it says that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And we draw near to the Lord so that we can look more like him. And what's beautiful about that is that he meets us where we are. He meets us in our brokenness and in our sin. And he makes us new. And we get to pursue him. We get to draw near to him and pursue holiness because he is holy. So as we continue to worship, let's praise him for drawing near to us and for the fact that we get to draw near to him. So let's continue to worship together. Jesus is in this room.
playing 
Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we humbly uh, come before you tonight. Uh, we thank you for allowing us to be able to come before you and uh, worship you for who you are and what you've done for us. Uh, we thank you for uh, salvation uh, through your son, uh, Jesus. Um, and we thank you that uh, you, you gave us uh, the gospel uh, to go and, and, and spread forth. I want to thank you for the uh, blessing of your word tonight. Pray that you open our, our hearts, hearts and minds as uh, Alex comes forth and uh, shares that uh, tonight with us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate you. Jason, I'm going to take a chance on your chair. I'm going to leave that bottle, body of water there. Okay. You guys ready to get this party started? I am. Can you recall a time in your life where you've been most free from sin? When you've been least motivated by selfish ambition, lust, and pride? When the fear of man, the cares of this material world, had the least influence over you? When have you felt the most capacity to love others? The most concern, intentionality, and urgency for perishing unbelievers. I can tell you when. It's when you've been most captivated with Jesus. It's been the phase in your life where you've been so full of faith in the promises of God that you lived by them. It's been when the gospel has meant so much to you that it dictated the way you lived your life, your life's priorities. I'm basically asking you, when has your life been the most holy? And what is holiness? For most of my life, I had a bad perception of what holiness is, a sour stigma when I applied the term to myself. I knew holiness is a good thing because God is holy, and it's something that I'm supposed to be because God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But my view of holiness was just a list of all the things that I should say no to in a, a sterile state of purity that I'm going to try my very best to remain in. In fact, God's holiness is something that I feared more than I desired. I felt I could never relate to the pastor at the pulpit that seemed to have it all figured out. Can you relate? I never connected with holiness. Oftentimes as a kid, I thought about the Pope and his little fancy hat and his golden scepter, you know couldn't really even relate to it. It was just a term thrown around for some sort of state that I'm to try and reach. You see, God wants us to know what our biggest problem is, how deep it goes, and its destructive consequences. He wants us to know how hopeless we are to make ourselves holy in order to point us to the glorious solution that he's provided for us, the solution to our biggest problem. God only emphasizes our unholiness and our sinful state, not because he's mean, but lovingly, so we can escape its grip and its consequences and know the full joy of living in the abundant, satisfying goodness of God. Can you imagine having a life-threatening health issue and going to the doctor and the doctor knowing and choosing not to tell you about it? 
Some of you know my story, and in my early 20s, I received a cancer diagnosis and spent a couple years in and out of the hospital with a life-threatening heart issue. And I remember the unbearable and overwhelming fear and suffering that I felt from my heart quitting on me, but I also remember the overwhelming peace, joy, and relief that I felt when my doctor came before me and said, Alex, I figured out the issue, and here's the solution. I bonded with this doctor, and I'll never forget her. I felt so loved by this doctor who invested in me and my heart and worked her tail off to figure out what was wrong so that she could tell me the issue and the solution that I might be fixed. This is exactly the type of relationship that God desires to have with us. We must understand the nature and seriousness of our disease in order to pursue and receive the right treatment. Our unholiness, our sin disease has been given the cure on the cross of Christ. Tonight we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And while you turn there, I'll give you a little backdrop. Paul himself founded the church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He was only in the city a short time because he was ran out of town by enemies of the gospel. Yet the church of the Thessalonians continued alive and active. Though Paul had to suddenly leave this church, his deep concern for, for them prompted these letters. The city of Thessalonica sat on the Ignatian Way, the famous highway that went east to west through Macedonia. Thessalonica was an important port in a melting pot city with cultures from all over the world. There was a staggering variety of religions and religious professionals. I imagine it would be a place that every corner you turn, there would be somebody preaching something. In the city, you would find the worship of many little g-gods, such as the Olympian pantheon, especially the likes of Apollo, Hercules, Aphrodite, and Athena. The mix of many cultures and many religions created a very unstable and chaotic political realm. What were the standards of life? What was the truth that I was to base my life around and live by? It makes me think of our current political state, the your truth and my truth culture. Sounds a little familiar. Absolute truth is in question and under attack and doesn't seem to exist. When the Christian church was established and Thessalonians began responding to the gospel, they became the instant target of persecution. Simultaneously, as they turned from the ways of the world, the world took notice and stuck a target on their repentant backside. Naturally, that's what Satan likes to do. As we turn from sin and repentance, his scope finds our back. So Paul was right to feel concerned as reports of the newly founded church started to flood in, that they were facing suffering and persecution, started to backslide back into their old immoral ways. The moral climate of the Roman Empire was not healthy. Immorality was a way of life, and the Christian message of holy living, it was new to that culture, and it was not easy for these young believers to fight off the temptations around them. So let's dive into the text and let's see what 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8 has for us. God's word says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. No one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for the ability that we have to come here, to even be woken up this morning with oxygen provided for us, a roof over our heads, and a way to get here tonight just to dive into your word to see what you have for us. And God, that's my prayer. God, my prayer is that you will be in this room tonight, that you show us what you want for us to glean from this text, that we may walk away from here and bring the gospel to the world by way of holy living. God, I pray over tonight, I pray over this text, I pray over every single one of our young adults and people in this room. God bless us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When Thomas Jefferson was asked to write the Declaration of Independence in late June 1776, kind of fitting for this night here in June 2022, he did so in just a few days. And the document we know isn't terribly long, but the draft that he delivered to the Second Continental Congress was much longer. And one phrase that made it into both copies, the original and the final version, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Some of you may be familiar with it if you're a history buff like me. That famous phrase right there could have been a good sermon title in itself from the sounds of it, but is that to be a child of God's anthem for living? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For the Bible-believing Christian, I think a biblical anthem for living would be the pursuit of holiness instead. And that is tonight's sermon title taking notes. The pursuit of holiness. And we will be gleaning from this text four ways that we can pursue holiness for our lives. Right away, we will be getting to the Apostle Paul's take for how we should be living. And it's our very first point of the night. Point number one, the first way we can pursue holiness is to live a life pleasing to God. Live a life pleasing to God. Look in verses one and two. Finally, then, brothers, you and I, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul was thankful for the growth that he had seen in the Thessalonians, but still looked for them to abound more and more. It wasn't a ceiling cap that they hit. We're to abound more and more in a walk that would please God. I read to you from the ESV translation, but the most accurate translation from the original language says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. These were not suggestions from the pen of Paul. These are commandments from Lord Jesus being relayed to us from Paul. They must be received that way as such. Paul said this was a commandment. This word was a military term describing an order from an officer to a subordinate. And the order came from Jesus and not just from Paul. So this poses a question for us all. What are our motives in all the things that we do? When we woke up this morning, we read our Bible and we had our devotion. Why did we do so? Why did we not read our Bible and have a devotion? As we stood before the mirror and 
got dressed, what were our motives as we buttoned up our little buttons and brushed our hair? What was on our mind when we drove here tonight and we walked through the doors of Bellevue Baptist Church? I'm sure there's many good reasons that there can be, but what was the reason? What was on the top of the priority list? As we tied our shoes and did the little loopy-de-loop, what were our rhymes and reasons why? And you say, okay, Alex, you're getting a little ridiculous with that one. But no. No, what would be ridiculous is to wake up every day, every morning, go about our routines, eat the food that we eat, do all the things that we do, and tie our shoes as if we're somehow owed the very ability to do so. The very ability to move our fingers in a way that makes the little loopity-loop. Regardless of what goes on in our lives, God is faithful. We wake up and there's oxygen there for us to breathe. We have the health that we have. I tell you what, that will change your life. When you start praying from a place of gratitude where you thank God for the very oxygen that you wake up and that fills your lungs, you'll see how God faithful, how faithful God is no matter what's going on. You see, Paul urges us that we are to walk in a way that pleases God, and if we are already doing so, to do so more and more. The most important thing about this from Paul is the very fact it's not just from Paul at all. It's from Jesus. It's a command from Jesus that we're to walk in a way that pleases God. So if it's a command and we aren't doing it, what does that mean? It means we're disobeying. It means we're disobedient. It means we're in direct defiance, rebellion of Jesus. You might say, Alex, why'd you have to go there? Because it's right here. And it's the truth. How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? Is it a motivation thing? It has to do with your rhymes and reasons why for all the things that you do? Or is it a perspective thing? You're just going about life with a self-exalting self-centered and self-kingdom-oriented pep to your step? Or do you not have any active state of pursuit in your steps at all? Maybe it's time for some of you to walk in obedience and put the biblical brand souls in your shoes and walk with a purpose that you're commanded to walk with. Or maybe for some of you, your souls have worn out. And you traded them in for self-made, self-kingdom brand souls. It's time to recalibrate. Recently, a couple weeks ago, I lost my hearing in my right ear. I just woke up one morning. I took a step out of bed, and my equilibrium was gone. I just fell to the ground destructively, lost my hearing, freaked me out. That's scary. I had no balance and no structure keeping my steps. Nothing was grounded, and I just crashed. Without your equilibrium, that's how you would walk, Unbla unbalanced, and every step would be a chaotic, destructive crash in action. Equilibrium is defined as a state of intellectual or emotional balance, a state of adjustment between opposing or divergent influences or elements, and a state of balance between opposing forces. Do you find yourself feeling that way, emotionally unbalanced? Stuck, unbalanced between two opposing forces and influences? As believers, the gospel is supposed to be our equilibrium. Ephesians 6.15 says as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel is to be equipped. It's a piece of the armor of God. 
Point number two, the second way we can pursue holiness is to live a life of sanctification. To live a life of sanctification. Look in verse three through five, verses three through five. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul says in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And we can't pass over this without taking a moment to observe one of life's greatest mysteries solved right before our eyes. This is a huge deal. Y'all should be jumping out of your chairs right now. A lot of believers struggle trying to find out what the will of God is for their lives. Here you have a clear answer. We have a clear answer to the thing that for some of us has seemed to be a mystery for years and years of our lives. What is the will of God? Sanctification. God's will for you and I is that we become sanctified. The word sanctification is related to the word saint. Both words have to do with holiness. To sanctify something is to set it apart for special use. To sanctify a person is to make him holy. To summarize, sanctification is a translation of the Greek word hagiosmos, meaning holiness or a separation. Remember earlier when I asked, what is holiness? It has the same meaning. It means to be set apart. Paul made it very clear what the will of God was for the Christian. The idea behind sanctification is to be set apart. Set apart from sin and a godless culture. So let's hear from Jesus, the one who God sent so that we may be set apart. Do you remember in John 17, the prayer Jesus prayed, pouring his heart out on behalf of you and I? Let's look at a few words from his prayer. John 17, verses 16 through 19 say this. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so... I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. It's important to connect some of these dots. Pay attention to this. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. The Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus next states, your word is truth. What does the Bible say about the word? Bible says the word became flesh, affirming and reinforcing Jesus is the truth being referred to. He then goes on to say, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, or I am making a conscious, willing decision to give myself up so that they, you and me, may be sanctified in truth. Did you follow that? Did you connect these truth dots? Why truth, truth, truth? The verse might as well say, sanctify them in me. Your word is me. And for their sake, I give up myself so that they may be sanctified in me. We can't be sanctified without Jesus. Apart from Jesus and the cross, we have no way to bridge the gap of unholiness to holiness. Did you catch it? The pull I feel with regard to holiness is really just one version of a great and common temptation to try and live the Christian life without Christ to replace discipleship with technique, worship with the emotional hype, communion with a list of rules to follow. We want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. 
It's a startling fact that we can become experts in the Christian life without growing any closer to Christ. When we separate holiness from Christ himself, the pursuit of holiness inevitably becomes mechanical or self-oriented. The solution to a spiritual equation or the effect of my own brute will. But genuine holiness is neither mechanical or self-oriented. It's in the first place relational. Holiness is not only a possibility for the Christian. Holiness is a requirement. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The difference between God and us is that he is inherently holy, while we, on the other hand, only become holy in having a relationship with Jesus and the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. However, the pursuit of holiness, it doesn't just end when we come to Jesus. In fact, it just begins There is a positional holiness that we inherit at regeneration when we are born again and a practical holiness which we must pursue actively. And this leads us into our next point. Point number three, the third way we can pursue holiness is to live a life of purity. To live a life of purity. Looking in verses three through five, it says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Immediately after telling us what the will of God is for our lives, telling us that we're to be set apart, Paul says we are to abstain from sexual immorality. It's the very first thing listed. The first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians are about Paul longing to visit the church in Thessalonica, but not being able to. And due to the short time that he had there, he had this deep concern for the believers there. Paul was concerned about the church, and he tried to return to them again and again. Listen to what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. I tried again and again to come to you, but Satan prevented me from coming. Why would Satan prevent Paul from coming to Thessalonica? I think it's because Satan was content with Thessalonica's state of affairs, and he didn't want the gospel-wielding apostle Paul to come marching into town and start handing out gospel tracts. Satan's business was booming with the godless. Satan didn't want to lose his customers. He didn't want the cure being brought to the diseased. You may have noticed we're living through a sexual revolution right now. In some ways, we've got nothing on Thessalonica. There were forms of temple worship through prostitution that was going on in some of the churches there. They lived in a sexually promiscuous culture where the goddess Aphrodite, who was among the most popular, arguably the most popular deity there in Thessalonica, It was the symbol of sexual license and authority, Aphrodite. Men could go to temples and commit immorality as their personal act of religious devotion. Various forms of immorality were tolerated and even encouraged. I know I said we have nothing on Thessalonica, but in some ways we definitely don't. In other ways, the world today is very much the same, if not worse. It's safe to say that we live in a world where sexual immorality is more readily accessible than at any other point in history. It used to not be so easy to view pornography as it it is now. 
Not long ago, you had to deliberately search it out. Often in sleazy stores, you wouldn't want to be caught dead in. And as you did so, in person, your reputation was at stake. Now it just takes a few clicks on your smartphone. It's never been easier to practice immorality. It's never been easier to practice unfaithfulness. It's never been easier to not be set apart. It's never been easier to live like the godless. But I have to take a moment to call out the lie. The accessibility is a real thing that we must absolutely monitor, but our desire needs to be monitored even more so. Ultimately, that's what drives us when we choose sin. We must cultivate, we must cultivate the same hate for sin that God has. Does sin break your heart? Does it grieve you? I reached out to my good friend, Paul Becker. He's probably my favorite Bible teacher. And I asked him this question. I said, Paul, how can we work to cultivate the same hate and grief for sin that God has? And this is what Paul said. God not only hates sin, but it actually brings him grief. The only way to mature as believers sufficiently enough to have the same mindset is to abide in the love of Christ the path to holiness runs directly to the vine of Jesus. It is only when we abide there that we can conform our thoughts to God. Verses 3 and 4 say to abstain from sexual immorality, that we're to control our own body in holiness and honor. Paul isn't just asking us to identify with the statement, the standpoint, the viewpoint. He's not just asking us to associate with it. He's not telling us what end of the spectrum to play identity politics on when it comes to sexual immorality. He's delivering a commandment of God with what we're to practice in regard to sexual immorality. Many years of my life went to that type of living. Being a Christian by association rather than a Christian by application. For years of my life, I went to life group, Sunday school, church service on Sundays, and attended church service every week. I could look the part, speak the lingo. Um, I could play church with the best of them. I had a killer prayer game too. The spiritual freestyles that could roll off my tongue like a pro. And I couldn't help but wonder what those around me thought as I had my eyes closed. I managed my image so well and my ego was so fed on how holy these people must find me to be. I could deliver absolute wordsmith punches as I spoke about how bad pornography is. Then I would go home and I would further a 10-year addiction to pornography and swipe through my Tinder account looking for the next thing to get involved in. How was I living such a double life? In a lot of ways, I was so desensitized by the years of feeding these choice-based habits. Satan loves when we have unaddressed choice-based habits like the ones I had because through that desensitization we'll often use God's grace as a license for immorality we'll abuse the grace and use it as a license to sin we play this game as if God is somehow unaware of our thought life like we're in control we're the only ones that can see those areas of our mind In the deceitfulness of our hearts, we play this game with temptation. 
and sin by entertaining the thought that we can always come back and confess. We can always come back and ask for forgiveness. What a dangerous type of mindset to allow yourself to live in. And I know. When my heart started to fail me and I felt the reality that I'm one heartbeat away from eternity and judgment, I was instantly exposed, spotlighted for all that I was behind closed doors. And God laid Matthew 7, 23 before me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, practitioners of lawlessness. The word practitioner burned in my mind. Why? Because Jesus says here, Alex, it's not what you claimed or identified with, but what were you a practitioner of? And I knew. I knew what my life was like behind closed doors. I knew. This verse spoke to me. Jesus was saying, Alex, you can continue to choose and practice your sin, or you can choose the will of the Father. A lot of us desire to be married someday. Some of us are already in pursuit of that and are in dating relationships. Where do you stand in regard to these requirements of holiness? Take honest inventory of your life behind closed doors. Take honest reflection of your internal behavior. I'm not talking about the behavior that we put on when we're here and we you know, can play church sometimes, but behind closed doors. What habits are in place in your life and how much work have you put in towards this realm of health and life? Think about all the things in your life and the entire lifespan that you've put practice into, invested time and energy into. Sports, school, hobbies, career, there's a million things I could go on and on. Think of the countless hours that have been spent investing in the health and practice of those things. How much time have you spent practicing purity? I'm not talking about the misconception I had of holiness earlier in my introduction, about how purity was some standstill state to stay in and just not be doing anything. I'm talking about in the same way you would shoot 103 throws to become a better basketball shooter. The same way you would study your school book, read your, you know, your study guide and things like that. The same way that you would go to the driving range to perfect your golf swing, to learn how to draw the ball, to cut the ball, slice it. Well, hopefully you don't want to slice it, but the same way you would hit the gym every day to burn fat, to build muscle. The same way you would put an effort towards those hobbies and everything else in your life. For me, this is a realm I never put in any work in for. So when I graduated high school and entered into the world, I got eaten alive. I utterly failed. I ended up living a double life for years in a vicious cycle of impurity and sin. I held on to this belief that one day, when I put on a wedding ring, it'll just all go away. I can put a stop to it then, like a flip of that switch over there, how it would turn the light on and off. Like the flip of a switch, I could just turn it off and be a holy husband. I held on to that lie. Are you kidding me? Satan had me right where he wanted me. And if I was Satan, that's where I'd want to get you to. I'm going to give you an example of something that I did in my life. God laid the verse, Matthew 5, 28, in my heart and mind. I couldn't run from it. It says, Whosoever looketh upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. 
So I sat out on a year-long mission to retrain my mind on a war path to destroy the ingrained neural pathways that led me to pixels on a screen and the objectification of my sisters in Christ, to no longer be a practitioner of divorce with adulterous habits, one who's a practitioner of faithfulness and commitment so that one day I might be able to be a suitable spouse. Paul is imploring us to abstain from sexual immorality and to learn to control our bodies in holiness when we, not when we put on a wedding ring, not one day when that happens, if it does, but now. The ancient Greek word porneia translated sexual immorality is a broad word referring to any sexual activity outside the marriage covenant. The broad nature of the word porneia shows that it's not enough to just say that you have not had sexual intercourse with someone who's not your spouse. And can I just tell you something? Can I just tell you a simple realization that God rocked my world with? When you have sex with someone outside of marriage, you're just letting each other know I'm okay with sex outside of marriage. So how then could you ever trust this person? How then could you ever know that you could trust them, the person that you're evaluating for marriage, that they could ever be faithful? They're literally showing you how important it is to them right there, and you're showing them how you feel about it. Paul's telling us what Jesus commands we practice for our own good. Not only that, but in verse 5, we see that when we don't pursue holiness in this area, we're just like those that don't know God. And this leads into our last point. Point number four, the fourth way that we can pursue holiness is to live a life in reverence to God to live a life in reverence to God. Look in verses 6 through 8. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We see two very important truths here. The first is that we harm our brother and sister in this manner. When we are sexually immoral, we take advantage of and defraud others and cheat them in greater ways than we could ever imagine. In essence, what we're doing is we're canceling out their holiness simultaneously with our own. Not only are we acting as the godless, but we're making them out to be godless as well. As the godless the Gentiles who are controlled by the ways and the passions of their own lusts. The concept of holiness can even be applied to other areas outside of sexual immorality and should be when dealing with others, specifically how we deal with and treat people. If we're not doing work on the sinful cravings of our hearts, then loving our neighbors for their good will really only be manipulating our neighbors for our own good. Do you love to love or do you love to be loved? Do you love to get things in return or do you love to love? Is your love conditional? Secondly, in verse 7 and 8, we see that when we disregard God's call to pursue holiness in our life, we aren't disregarding man, but we're disregarding God. We're not just rejecting man, we're rejecting God. And this realization was a huge turning point for me in my life my life behind closed doors. I remember sitting in college in Sunday school class, 
here at Bellevue. Um, I was in Rick Jones and Ben Taylor's college class, and Ben Taylor was teaching one day, and he was specifically talking about the topic of holiness, sexual immorality, things related, so on, and there was a room filled with college-age students, and right as he was on the topic of pornography, when I was in the height of my unholiness behind closed doors, he just so happened to look directly at me and make eye contact. Coincidence? I don't know. And he said, just know that every time you choose sin, you are choosing sin over God. You are telling God to his face, I want this instead of you. I'm choosing my sin over you. When we choose sin, we do just that. We choose sin. We choose sin over God. But what we fail to realize about the pursuit of happiness that the human being embarks on is that the pursuit of happiness promised by false securities, comforts, and idols of this world and sin turn out to be false lies that can only grieve us in the end. Ironically, when the human being chases after sin, and engages with sin in search of happiness, destroys us and separates us from the, the only source that can ever provide true joy. Apart from that source, it cannot be found. Ironically, people avoid holiness to pursue happiness, not knowing that the two are one. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, said, holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. If we're not actively working and in pursuit to overcome sin, we will be consumed by it. If we're not actively working and in pursuit to find joy in Christ, we will be grasping for joy in the things that can only rob and deplete us of the very joy we seek. God's call on how we ought to walk and to do more and more in holiness is really the ultimate invitation to joy. Of course, you won't feel clean and pure when you're knee-deep in the mud. You've got to take action to leave the mud and go take a shower. Psalms 40, verse 2 says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Stop chasing after victory. Start living your life from a place of victory already obtained by the saving work of Jesus Christ on a bloodstained cross. It's time for us Christians to face our responsibility for holiness. I'm going to end with an excerpt from a book I was given to read on pursuing holiness. It says, Too often we say we are defeated by this sin or that sin. No, we're not defeated. We're simply disobedient. It might be good if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I'm defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. But when I say I'm disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. 
So let us take responsibility and pursue God's holiness for our lives. I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight, this text. Thank you for being such a loving God that when we're stuck in a valley, we can't become holy that you sent your Son down to earth to us so that we might be holy through a union with him and his work on the cross. God, I pray that as we leave this place that we don't leave here with some high that this will fade, that we'll take this text, this piece from your word, a piece of truth, that we apply it to our lives and we will start taking responsibility for our holiness, holiness that we cannot have apart from you, that we'll seek you harder, we'll run, we'll run faster and quicker and harder towards you and not the, the empty things of this world. God, I pray that we lay it all at your feet that we take honest inventory. God, watch over all these young adults and all these people in this room as we walk from here. God, I pray that you protect us, you walk with us, you guide us, and let your, your face shine upon us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.